Welcome to the Newton Knowledge Podcast. This is Steve Target coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I'm one of the partners and principals of Newton One, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Mark Singer. Hello, Mark. How are you this afternoon? I'm great, Steve. How are you? Good. Super. Well, for those of you who haven't heard our podcast in the past, then the intention of our podcast is to complement our webinars. We try and provide meaningful content to our valued advisor community, generally anyone else who's interested in learning more about uh, sophisticated insurance topics related to estate planning, liquidity, and executive benefits. And during our podcasts, we tend to focus on discussions of topical issues that provide you with insight into the people, processes, and products that make our industry so critical. We're occasionally also going to highlight individuals who have been very meaningful to Newton One in the industry and therefore have contributed to helping us serve our valued clients. For those of you who haven't met us, Newton One is a national life insurance planning firm delivering insurance solutions structured to help clients and their advisors engaged in solving estate planning, wealth transfer, business succession, and executive benefits challenges. We're a member of the M Financial Group, who offers our clients and us access to the nation's most prestigious insurance carriers, developing innovative products available only through our network. And now onto our program. Today, we're going to have the, the distinct and Real pleasure to have a discussion with Eric Eklund, who's the Senior Advanced Markets Counsel at M Financial, based in Portland, Oregon. Good afternoon, Eric. Good afternoon, guys. How are you? We're doing great. Thank you very much. What's the weather like over in Oregon, Eric? It's sunny here. I think it's about 65. I've got the doors open, so if you hear a bird call or something, I apologize. Good for you. We we got a taste of spring, and then it got cold over the last few days, and hopefully it gets warmer sooner than later. But that sounds like Philadelphia to me. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Steve and I, and I'm sure our listeners are very curious about your journey, Eric, and, and what that looked like prior to joining the M Financial team. You know, I've been in the life insurance or life insurance adjacent business for 18 years now, um, first as a producer for several years. And then I changed strategy in my own career a little bit to uh, become an attorney, a trust in estates and tax practitioner. And uh, then that brought me back full circle here uh, to working with the firms just like yours. And so I've been at M now for three years. I think my th- three-year anniversary is July 5th. So I celebrate it every year nationwide with some fireworks for everybody. So that's on me. <laughs> that's well done. That's fantastic. Were, were you always in Oregon or did you travel all over? Um, I grew up in Oregon, went to school in the Midwest, and uh, lived in in the southern Arizona for or central Arizona for quite a while too. But it's, it's coming back to Oregon after about twenty years of being away, and it's it's great. It's nice to be back. That's great. I I have to ask. You have a beautiful bow tie on in your LinkedIn uh, you picture. You're not uh, using that picture, are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's up to you. But I, I have to ask: Is that a particular event, or you know, is that a, a constant fashion you for know, you? Because I it's grew nice. Up, um, playing uh, classical music, music as a kid, and I learned to tie a bow tie. So I've always had them in my repertoire. That's nice. It's killer. I really like it. I don't I, always wear them, but I always have them. <laughs> I, I had to wear one at a wedding a few years ago. I learned how to tie it uh, via Google, and I forgot how to tie yeah. it, but. I enjoyed it. It's a nice look. <laughs> it, it, it is. It, it always is d- distinctive. Yeah. So you can always stand out when you're wearing one, unless you're in a, you know, a concert. Then you look like every the rest of the penguins. <laughs> Bow ties <laughs> aside, <laughs> what what are you and your your team focused on being a part of the Advanced Markets Council with them? You know, Advanced Markets. It, I think it really is three tiers for the M community. 
On one side, I support the core M business, which ranges from wealth management to insurance product design to helping firms and help their customers to the, to the best of their abilities. And so there's that angle. Then we work with the carriers to work on innovative strategies, making sure we're all in alignment, understanding the tax code and the rules and strategies the same way. And then I serve the industry as well, both as a liaison from a legislative support side, as well as um, working with uh, other attorneys in the country, other associations to advance the needs of of our customers and our clients, your clients. So it's focusing on the estate planning strategies, the gifting strategies, the business ownership strategies, compensation strategies, business transfer, keeping all of that in mind from the emotional level of the client, the emotional needs of the client and their families, their economic needs and levels, and maximizing all of that to the best that we can. Everyone's recipe is a little different, so you got to tweak it. But in the end, we all like chicken and veg, right? <laughs> that and you know, tax codes, estate threshold, income tax, whatever it may be, I feel like it's ever changing. So to have a resource, yeah, to have a resource such as yourself and your team uh, as an advisor and a producer at M is is fantastic. Um, That's what we aim for. Absolutely. What what do you think out of the the partner firms, what, what makes M firms itself unique in comparison to other insurance advisor model agencies? I think one of the greatest things I ever heard about the insurance industry, and it translates to any business where you are working with a client, right? You're either doing something to somebody or for somebody. And if it sounds like it's a white belt and white shoes, it probably is, right? If it sounds too good to be true, probably it's too good to be true. But if you're focused on doing things for people, your professionalism shines through and you have a very successful life and successful business because your clients are successful. And I say all this because I feel that my experience with M firms is that everything is solely focused on the benefit of the client. Now, in the legal world, we have a standard for this. It's called a fiduciary standard. And I don't want to cloud things up with that kind of best interest. It's really about that you tend to have relationships with your clients that are deeper and stronger, and you know them. And because they feel that, there's a lot of trust and the ability to help them make the decisions that benefit their families. I think that is the biggest difference between M firms and many other advisory firms that I've seen out there. They all say they do it, but I see it in action every day. The other thing that's different is the relationship with M Financial. M Financial's group of owners, because as principals of the firm, you own M Financial, and I'm relative, I recognize that. Clients don't necessarily know that. But you have banded together as the top professionals in the country to use the scale that you have collectively to make unique clients, pardon me, unique products for the clients. So they can get something with a big name, prestigious insurance carrier. And not only that, but you give them a special advantage because we have developed specific pricing models and economic models with those carriers that are only available M clients. So I think those are the big differences. Those are all great points, Eric. You said fiduciary responsibility, and there's so many avenues, products, um, different ways to construct policies. We, we mentioned tax codes. There's so many different variables. You know, when it all comes back to, well, what's best for the client, their goals and objectives, it makes our job so much easier to just always hang our hat on that. So that's a huge point. You also mentioned products. 
the three main factors or the the three legs of the stool that hold up our proprietary products are, uh, as you know, volume, preferred mortality experience, and elite persistency. Additional factor and, and one of the most important ones is our reinsurance company at M. Right. Can you explain high level what reinsurance means and, and how it plays an imperative role concerning the structure and pricing of our M proprietary products? I'll give you the answer that I was told when I asked that first question earlier in my career. What's reinsurance? They say it's insurance to the insurance. But what does that mean? When an insurance company says, I'm going to take $10 million of risk, they're not going to take all that risk. They're going to share some of that risk with another group. And that group is called a reinsurance company. Now, as you said, M, and I could have said this, but I guess I didn't, M has its own reinsurance company. So what that means is if you go to a prestigious carrier and you say, I want $10 million of life insurance, they say, okay. And we already know they're not going to take all $10 million all the time. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they'll take $50, $60 million of, of risk. But M always says, we're going to participate in that risk with you, carrier. So when you insure our client, we're on the hook and you're on the hook. And that's something that I don't, I mean, it's transparent to clients. They don't know this. They don't understand it. But what it means to you as a principal of a firm, as an owner in Emory, right, is you're actually saying to your client, I'm going to take economic risk in providing your family security. I'm not just handing it off to another carrier. I am taking that risk along with you and everyone else in this. And that is a completely unique thing that nobody can really understand until they see that money in action. They get that check. And they realize, oh, that came from the money I saved. It came from the money that the insurance company created. And it came from the money that my M firm helped create directly. That's what reinsurance is. It says, I'm going to share the risk with you while you take the risk. We reinsure the client. Somebody else reinsures us. There's actually a third level called retrocessionaire where they reinsure the reinsurers. That was great. And the concept is great and advantageous for our clients and advisors. My thought, why don't other firms do this? You know, M being the only one. In order to say, I'm going to take a million dollars of risk, I have to have a million dollars sitting somewhere. Not everybody can do that. It's the scale. It's the maturity. 40 years of working together in this way, the M firms have been, that's very hard to duplicate. They were the first and they've been able to make it work. And because of that, it just grows and grows and grows and grows. But to start there, it's very difficult. Eric, is it fair to say almost everybody in the insurance buying process with M firms, we're all sitting on the same side of the table? We as the advisors, the clients who are engaged, of course, in the transaction, the insurance company, M Financial, the reinsurance company. And so all of our interests are aligned because we all want successes the same way. Yeah, to, to the degree that we define the success, I think everyone's interests are, are definitely aligned. Um, it's always tricky when you're working with a client because at some time, somebody's going to have to buy a product or service and at you know which hat and all those things. But the fact that you can sit down as an M advisor and say, I'm going to put my own money at stake as well as the carrier, indirectly, of course, but the carrier's money's at stake, our money's at stake, your money's at stake. We're all in this together. I think that's a fair statement to make. Good. Well, as we all know, there's been there's been a lot of changes since the election in 2020. A lot of speculation on on what's going to happen moving forward. Some things have changed. A lot is you know kind of floating out there in terms of rumors and 
again, speculation on what may happen. So let's spend a little time going through some of the, the we'll call them potentially opportunistic planning strategies if or when some of these changes take place. But then also there's, you know, there's simply just based on where the, the economy is today, we think that there's some real opportunities out there. So sitting in the seat where you are with your bow tie and your experience uh, in the advanced <laughs> markets, we're, we're going to ask you that. Today, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have to use that picture now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we'll, we'll ask you to maybe help us, uh, help our, our listeners understand some of these topics. We won't dive real deep into them. Let's, you know, let's kind of, and not really a rapid fire format, but let's go through some of these topics. And the, the first one that us in the insurance world kind of nerd out to would, would be this, this impact to insurance pricing that took place at the end of 2020. We know the definition of life insurance is defined by section 7702. But there was oh, a, yeah. a, a pretty neat little change that occurred in there. And insurance companies, I, I think, are still figuring their way through how this will, will actually impact the pricing or the advantages that the life insurance products offer. But from your perspective, how would you kind of frame that as an opportunity for those who are looking to buy insurance? You bet. Uh, I'll frame this as, as how the what time it is versus how the watch works. If you want to know how the watch works, uh, I published an article in Trust in the States that came out in April of 2021 that you can go grab and uh, read all about it. But what time it is, is that life insurance companies are only allowed by law to take so much money in premium before that money becomes an investment contract. And the, the reason that there's a difference is because an investment contract has taxable income, a taxable result. Life insurance, the only financial instrument in the U.S. tax law that allows for tax-deferred growth, tax-free access during the policy owner's lifetime and a tax-free death benefit as long as everything's properly structured, which is the totally normal way to structure a life insurance policy. It's the only instrument that has that. So in order to put the brakes on that, Congress said, we can't let too much money go into these contracts or they will be investment contracts. All right, that's fine. We, we, it's great. That happened in 1984, 1986. And then in that kind of time frame, there's three major laws. We'll skip over that. The impact to that has been fine. People have been buying permanent life insurance for 40 years now under these rules, no problems, except we are in a different economic environment today than we're in the 1980s. Now, technology, all these things aside, there's a simple thing called interest rates. And interest rates in the mid-80s were so high that everyone thought that was the normal standard. So they said, look, you're probably 10 to 15% commercial loan rate interest rates today. So we're going to set these rates at 4 or 6%. Great. That worked forever and ever and ever. As interest rates went on that downhill slide as they have since that time to now where they're at record lows, 1%, 2%, all of a sudden, insurance companies couldn't actually create products that buyers of insurance could buy and have enough premium in them to guarantee the security of that insurance. Then there's some state laws that got in the way as well. So what they did is they set these rates to make sure it's not an investment contract. We're going to decrease those rates. So you're able to put more policy premiums in, support your policy, have it be more secure. And so there's great opportunities here. One of the really well-known concepts in life insurance is because we can use tax-deferred growth during life and we have tax-free access during life through withdrawals of the basis or the policy loans, if we structure these policies this way, you can have supplemental income when you need it from your policy if you need it. 
And so what we're able to do now is put more premiums in by less death benefit and have more less cost of insurance drag and grow that pot bigger faster. And by doing that, what actually happens is if I start with a lower death benefit and more premium, I actually have a much higher death benefit at the end than I would have had it. I bought that death benefit at the beginning. So it's a very interesting time for people to really go in, look at their policy, especially if it's a cash value policy, and say, what is different? Does it benefit me? And if you aren't a cash value life insurance owner, it's the best time that it's ever been to buy it because you get the most advantage because you have more capacity to put premium in. Yeah, great point. So those of us at M understand and Newton One certainly that kind of table stakes for us is is our annual policy audits, going back in, auditing policies, performance, are there new opportunities that are available, but then also opening the door to, to create new conversations on, on new policies. Yeah. Uh, let, let's stay within this low interest rate environment um, because one of the techniques or strategies or conversations that we've we've had over the last year with clients are related to intra-family loans and really capitalizing on the low AFR rates. Have you seen that through Portland and M? Is is that a, a strategy that, that you all have, have seen being implemented as well? And if so, that is, tell us yeah. what the benefits are. That is one of the biggest strategies in all of estate planning. What an intra-family loan is, if a son borrows money from dad or vice versa, that's an intra-family loan. Every loan must actually have an interest charge to it, or it's not really a loan. It's a gift. Now, we know, and your advisors know, but maybe your clients don't know, when you make a gift that's too big, it's a taxable gift. And the government comes and says, we want 40% of that gift. So instead of using gifts, we use loans. We can move a lot of money between parties because there's an obligation to repay that debt in the future. So you lend me $250,000 for five years that I owe you one and a half percent on, one or 2% on. And that is a statutory federal minimum rate that says, it's called the applicable federal rate. If you charge that minimum rate of interest, it will be bona fide as a loan. It will not be seen as a gift. So we use that strategy all the time to move company shares, to move cash, to move a home, to move any kind of asset. You just have to say, here's the loan terms. Here's the promissory note. You're going to pay me interest on this. And then uh, you're going to owe me back the principal amount. Well, what happens when you give an appreciating, when you use an appreciating asset in one of these loan arrangements? Maybe that asset's worth $100,000 today, but it's worth a million dollars tomorrow. Well, I'm only paying interest on the 100000 so I pay that year over year, let's say one and a half percent. So here's a hundred or one thousand five hundred dollars every year. And now all of a sudden we're gonna sell that property for a million dollars. At eight hundred fifty thousand dollars has been moved to the party you want to move it to at a cost of fifteen hundred dollars a year and your return of the principal. So here's your hundred thousand dollars back. Uh, Steve, I've got this eight hundred fifty thousand, you've got the interest payments, and we have just moved a lot of money for a very small cost. Versus a gift tax of 40%. Million-dollar gift tax, $400,000. A $100,000 gift, $40,000. So you can see there's a huge amount of leverage that is here at play. And it's a phenomenal way to help families transition things that they need to transition. Yeah. Well, let's, um, not forecasting, but trying to read the tea leaves a little bit. Many believe that estate taxes are going up. 
income taxes will be increased, capital gains taxes will be increased. With all of that, arguably one of the most inefficient from a transfer perspective, assets to own at death is a qualified plan asset. So whether that's a 401k or an IRA that's been sheltered and tax deductible, it's never been taxed. And anything above the exemption, there could be a, an income and an estate tax and you know, effectively wiping out a, a large percentage, a large portion of that, of that qualified asset from being passed down from generation to generation. Not to even you know, mention the fact that the stretch IRA planning technique is, has been eliminated as well. One of the things that we've seen out there uh, and talked to clients about is the opportunity to perhaps, if that IRA is not as critical an asset for current income, in other words, there's there's plenty of other assets available to keep the standard of living or whatever distributions or income or capital needed to keep the family and, and uh, the household running. If there's an asset out there that's tucked in this qualified plan, maybe we should accelerate some of the distributions. And while this may seem backwards, pay tax today. And then potentially even leverage that distribution into effective and efficient trusts that may end up buying life insurance policies for an individual or, or a survivorship sort of policy. Is that something you've seen out there? We, we call it a leveraged RMD to, you know, to, yeah. to get, to get fancy with it. But talk to us a little bit about that if, if you've seen that in the marketplace. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, first off on this, it's such an interesting thing. Because people have the opportunity to save money for retirement. And as a way to stimulate that and support it, Congress says, here are some tax-favored plans. Now, this is the next best plan to a permanent life insurance contract because it grows tax-deferred. And sometimes you don't get a, you get a tax deduction in the contribution. The difference is that the money comes out taxable. People have this incentive, and, and through work and diligent hard work and savings – they accumulate a lot of money in these plans. And then because it's such a big, nice number at the end, they think, well, I don't really want to spend that. I want to give that to my family. So I'm going to name my children or grandchildren as the beneficiaries of my retirement plan. So when I pass away, they will get that money and that will make me feel really good. And it's a wonderful, beautiful thought, but there's a problem. That money has to be taxed. And when the account is large enough, it could be subject to an estate tax. And when it's transferred to a grandchild or further, it could be subject to a generation skipping tax. I mentioned a gift tax before is a 40%. Well, under current US law, 2021, what is uh, May 10th, uh, we have uh, this 40% unified tax rate between gifts, estate taxes, and generation skipping taxes. They are three tax systems that run parallel to the income tax system. Now, when I die and I leave a $3 million IRA to my child, they have to pay income tax on that money at some point in time. And that is going to be a huge bill. If I took $3 million of income, I'm definitely in the highest tax bracket. So they're going to take the most money out of that. If I had other state tax assets, that now might be even reduced by 40% and then income tax comes out of it. So that could be up to 82% tax rate on this money that I worked so hard to save that I felt so good about giving to my family. So in these situations, because it's not for everybody, right? But when you see this happening as an advisor, you look at ways to minimize that in tax impact. In addition to all of this, there's another rule that says, we know you want to give this to your family. And so we are going to make you start taking money out at age 72. And that's 
uh, called required minimum, required minimum distributions. We used to know it as 70 and a half, but they've amped up that age to 72 now. So one way to do that is to use required minimum distributions to buy life insurance in such a manner that it's either sufficient to pay the tax or can be used for another asset when that tax has to be paid. So it's a way to make sure you're insuring, e-insuring the entire transfer versus what you hoped and thought you were going to do by leaving your child and grandchild as the beneficiaries of these of these assets. And so we've actually gone through a study to look at when there's economic switching points and when it's beneficial, when it's not beneficial. But I'll tell you what, in 80% of the cases, it works really well, but it's a, it's a common strategy that's difficult to understand until they see that what they worked so hard to put together isn't what they get to transfer. Then it makes a, a, a client think twice about how they want to structure their whole retirement plan. Well, I think, you know, you bring up a good point, too. And that point is that, you know, a lot of the concepts that that we work through with clients maybe are not so obvious when we start the process. But everyone's situation is different. Every planning opportunity requires a lot of deliberate uh, and slow and thoughtful and and um, including everybody who's who has a, a, a you know a stake in the in the process coming up with a solution and in many cases, multiple solutions. And then coming to the conclusion of, of which one might be best, just kind of throwing out some other ideas. One of the, one of the, if we stay in this this increasing tax environment, <laughs> which we we think we're about to enter into, um, <laughs> and shifting a little bit over to executive benefits. You know, we at Newton One and certainly across the M community as well, is that we're, we're, us are engaged in the executive benefits, and that can be, you know, helping companies mitigate some of the potential future corporate tax increases or, you know, structuring programs to help recruit and retain and reward employees or executives um, or to finance buyouts and, and our key person um, uh, liabilities. And, you know, one of the interesting dynamics I think that we've seen anyway is, you know, some companies uh, knock on wood have done really, really well over the last couple of years. And certain industries have done really well. Not all, of course. Some have certainly struggled and are in kind of a tough spot right now. But there are those that are doing extremely well. And those are the companies that are looking to um, you know, keep their valued employees uh, in-house and rather than being kind of taken by a, a, a competing company. Is there one um, strategy that you've seen out there? Uh, is, is split dollar back in favor again? Are there are there other strategies that, that you might have seen or, or are seeing come across your desk that you think would be worth sharing with our community? Well, that's a, that's a deep question. There's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to focus on two areas, if you don't mind, maybe three. The first one is what you said, recruit, retain, and reward employees. Businesses have a lot of advantages given to them again by Congress to incentivize employees to stay. And that's they do through health insurance, and flexible spending plans and paid time off and all these things. But one of the most impactful things is disability insurance and life insurance. And companies can offer these benefits at a tax favored position for the employee. And so in addition to our hard dollars, right, the check that we get every week, two weeks or whatever, and the taxes are taken out and it's deposited in our account. In addition to those hard dollars, I like to call them soft dollars, benefits of all types. And so by using financial instruments in a sophisticated way, which is completely within the reach of every business owner, because advisors are experts in these things, 
So you don't have to understand a business owner. You just have to understand that your advisors understand it, but they will work hard to make sure you feel good and understand it. By using these, these financial instruments in certain ways, you create literally a bond between you and the employee or the person you're trying to recruit. Maybe they have a special needs child. Maybe they have a special retirement goal. What is it that you can do that's equitable to all the employees, equitable to you, the business owner, that you can use to tie that recruit or that key employee to you so that they don't leave? Because you know the value that they bring. They understand that there's a value that they bring. So I think there's a great opportunity to have a conversation. You know, key person life insurance, there's pension plans, there's special types of carve-out disability plans. All kinds of really great, exciting things that you know that you guys do for your clients that I think every business owner should be aware of. So that's the recruit retain reward. The next important thing to me, I think, is understanding the business balance sheet. Life insurance that's owned by a company, if a death benefit is paid, it comes straight to the balance sheet as uh, non-tax dollars. And as we've talked about a, a person owning life insurance, having those benefits of tax-deferred growth tax-free access during the policy owner's or policy insurer's lifetime, and then tax-free death benefits properly structured, which is just a simple notice of consent form, the company can own life insurance on its owners, executives, key employees to make sure that there's a company, there's money in the business to handle an event such as the death of a key person. This is a big deal. And that money that grows in the company, just as it does on the personal side, it grows tax-deferred and can be accessed tax-free when it needs to be. If you need to have an investment for a business or you need to go out and do a trade show or recruit somebody, you have cash in your coffers that's protected by this wrapper. That we, even, we talked about before 7702, it's protected by this wrapper. It's, it's a great opportunity. So it's a great way to accumulate money inside of a company as well because they're putting that money in the bank account. They're putting it in the bricks and mortar, but capital's going somewhere. A life insurance place is a place that Companies don't realize that they can hold money in. It's just a great place to do it. The opportunity to have cash value on balance sheets, whether it's bank-owned life insurance or insurance company-owned life insurance or corporate-owned life insurance, mm-hmm. it really is valuable. I mean, if we, when we can leverage the tax on the growth and still keep an asset on the balance sheet of a company, and then, of course, have a death benefit that's, that's extremely valuable, that's the Swiss Army knife. Right. I heard somebody say once, Think of the insurance policy as an employee. Put me on your payroll. When, I, when you walk out, I walk in with a million dollars, right? That's what the insurance does. It's amazing. And plus, it has all these other te- benefits of, of the tax uh, features. The third thing that, that I came to mind was the business transfer. Nothing is more expensive than a business transfer, and I'll tell you why. On one hand, somebody has to earn the money. Let's say I want to go and come and buy a business. I have to earn money. I have to pay tax on that money so that I can buy that business. So I have to pay, if I take all my top tax rates, $1.67, I have to earn $1.67 to go buy a $1 asset. That's, a, that's painful. And if you're a business owner who's going to transfer it to key people, if you don't have outside money coming in to buy it, what I just described, you are going to find a way to give up something so that those employees have capital to return to you to buy out your interest. So you are in effect funding your own buyout. This is the truism of all business owners that goes overlooked until they have to look at it. And I think because it's they know it's true, they don't want, they want to avoid it. So what we look at a lot in my work 
is business transition plans that use financial instruments to accumulate money that can be used to buy the business. So if I'm an employee, I can defer some of my income into a plan that becomes a savings account that I can use to buy interest in the company. And those we might call non-qualified deferred compensation plans. Um, They're just ways that you can accumulate money that you earn. My money, I pay taxes on it, and I can use it to buy your shares, and and I can become a business owner. That's one way. Another way is to have a buy-sell arrangement where maybe there's partners, maybe there's key people. They have an agreement that at the death or a certain triggering event of a party, that they will come in with cash and buy the assets. Well, where do you get that money? You, you earn it, you borrow it, you beg, you steal. What are you going to do to get the money to, to, to make it happen? But you know that if you put insurance products through that plan, that when, we just talked about, you walk out, the money walks in, all of a sudden you have capital there that can buy that interest. And that's available for disabilities. It's available for divorces and retirements. Because when you're using cash value life insurance, you not only have the death benefit, you have the cash value and all the tax features we talked about before, it's all there. So you can use these financial instruments in such powerful ways in transitioning a business that it has to be said. The third way that I want to talk about this is that employees might want to be able to buy your company. You can sell it to your employees to what's called an ESOP or Employer Stock Ownership Plan. You create a plan, they get money to buy shares from you, and you become in business with your employees but still maintain control, of the, maintain control of the company. And that's another great way to transition a business. I know that that's a lot, but you ask. Staying real quick before we wrap up, I just, I, I have to bring this up, talking about business owners and using leverage. What about utilizing this continuous low interest rate environment and premium financing some of these solutions? What are your thoughts on that? Well, premium financing is an interesting thing. And, and I, I actually, I'll, I'm going to take credit for this because I coined it. I think every premium is financed. It's either self-financed, it's privately financed, or it's commercially financed. So when I think about that, I think, where is the premium going to come from? Is it going to come from my paycheck? Is it going to come from my a gift from my grandparent? Or am I going to go out and get other money to, to use other people's money to buy my insurance? Well, this is a very common thing. And it's common because of the reason we talked about back when we talked about gift taxes. I can borrow money and make a pay a, an interest rate, or I can make a gift and pay a gift tax rate, even if it's a 6% commercial interest rate, which is not. Right now, they're like 2%, 3%, 4%. Even if it's 6%, that's a lot cheaper than 40%, right? Anything cheaper than 40% is a better deal. Big banks and small banks, community banks, will loan the borrower the money to buy the life insurance, and then they use the death benefit and cash for that. They have collateral. It's all very well secured and very well, it's a very standardized process. You borrow the, the insurance, my premiums, to pay the premiums, the policy grows as fast as it can, as strong as it can. And then at some point, you owe that money back to the bank. You know they're going to come knocking for it. So you use either outside money that you've accumulated to pay that money back. Or in some cases, you might support repayment of that loan with policy values. Whatever is making the most economic sense at the time. But there's a reason we use other people's money. It's because we know we can do better with our money than it might be able to do in that insurance contract at that time. So that's kind of where I see premium financing being really useful and how we use it a lot. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for giving us the opportunity to take that and steal that gem. And we have it recorded. So <laughs> if we have to refer back, we, we certainly will. But this well, is- I say that because uh, we see a lot of times um, in, in my area, 
I get across my desk at least twice a week. Have you seen this premium financing arrangement? Well, we talked about white belt, white shoes, too good to be true, probably is. In some cases, they are demonstrating a program that everything has to work out just right. And we all know as we get through life, nothing worked out the way we want it to, but we always came out stronger for it. So I get discouraged when I see clients getting only these types of opportunities, these pie in the sky opportunities. You know, I think one of the hallmarks of of an M firm, you're taking these, you're dissecting them, you're understanding them, you're stress testing them, and then giving your clients back real good advice, not just a sales pitch. Eric, this has all been great information. I want to thank you for your time. We're coming up on a close. Is there anything else you would like to add um, for yourself and for our listeners before we depart? No, I just really appreciate the chance to, to talk to you. I hope it was at all useful and and the continue your guys' good work. It's great to know you and I'm always proud of the work that the firms do. Thank you so much. This was great. We'll be in touch soon. All right. Be well. Take it easy. The material and opinions voiced are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what is appropriate for you, please contact a member of our team.